Good morning. My name is Brian Trias. I'm the family pastor here at Fellowship, and it is great to be with you this morning as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. And so I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 4. And while you're, talk- while you're turning there, I want to talk to you a little bit about our topic this morning, which is division. And division is a thing that can be good, it can be bad, and you know, good division. If, if I were to draw a line right down the middle of this place and I were to say, I want, I want my, my Jayhawks on one side and I want my Wildcats on the other side, we'd have people get up and run, right? Because they don't want to be labeled in one of those camps and there'd be some good-natured taunting going back and forth and we would have fun with it and then there would be some people whose hands go up and said, like, what do you do if you're not a Jayhawk? A, a if you're not a... Uh, <laughs> If you're not a Jayhawk or a Wildcat, and I'd say that's me too. We figure that out. And sports divisions are fun, and division can be fun. But then there's some divisions that would be a little less fun. And so if I were to say, all right, we got a line down the middle of the room. We're going to put our Republicans over here. And we're going to put our Democrats over here. All of a sudden, we'd be like, oh my goodness, did you see where they went? <laughs> because there's some divisions that we just really get uncomfortable with. And then there's the topic that we're brought to in 1 Corinthians of division in the church. Division in the church is something that's giving Paul heartache. And he has spent the first few chapters of the book talking about how we should not have these. How the camps that are saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter, I follow Paul. And then the spiritual ones who I follow Jesus. Well, that's not good. And so what Paul has for us this morning as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is he has a guide for us how to, how to reduce division in the church because it is essential that we be unified. We're going to pick up at the end of chapter 3 in verse 22 and 23 and he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It is this great picture of unity. The apostles belong to you. The, the apostles belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. We are one. But the Corinthian church and so many other churches are not behaving as much. And so he begins in verse 4. And in verses 4, 1 through 5, we're going to find that Paul's teaching us that faithfulness comes first. Faithfulness comes first. Let's read 1 and 2. It says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And so that word servants in the first verse, we're very com- it's very common to see the word servants in the New Testament, but this is a different word than the normal one. It's a newer word, that, or a, a, a rarer word that Paul uses, and it's got a great word picture that goes along with it of someone who is a rower. You see, if we were to go out on Lake Shawnee and we were to get in a boat, we would turn a key on an ignition and we'd have a big engine and we'd zip across. But for them to travel on a boat, it required for them to get in a boat with people who were rowing. And see, the people who were doing the rowing were the servants. They were not the ones in charge. They were not the ones directing course. A captain would say, hey, we're going to go across the way. We're going to go to this city. We're going to go over here. And the servants would be the one who rode. They were the underlings. 
This is what Paul is describing himself as. I am a servant of God. The second word he uses is that as a steward of the mysteries of God. A steward would be like someone who owned a store, and when he could not be there for his business, he would leave his steward in charge. It was someone who might have some authority over the other servants, as Paul is an apostle of the church. But he is still under the master. He is doing the master's business. He is performing so that the master's business will be profitable. It is not his business that he is running. He says that he is a steward of the mystery of Christ. That is the mission that he has. The mystery of Christ, or the mystery of God is that Christ is in us. That there is a new way, a better way out there that has been ushered in with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is Paul's mission to go out no matter where he's called to and proclaim this. To build God's kingdom. And see, in the Corinthian churches... Corinthian church is interested in building their own kingdoms. They have the kingdom of Apollos and the kingdom of Paul and the kingdom of Peter and they're not working together to build Christ's kingdom. So Paul describes himself as a servant and a steward and then he talks in verse 2 about how he should be found. And he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Another way to interpret the word trustworthy is to say faithful. It is required that a servant and a steward be found faithful. Now, if we were writing this ourselves, we would probably change that word. We would probably say we want our servants and our stewards to be found successful. Because if we're honest, we like the flash. We like the comfort. We like what comes with results. We want the measurables. But a servant and a steward is called to faithfulness. When Jesus tells us the parable of the talents and how he is given, some are given five and some are given two and some are given one, when the five responds that he made five back for his master, he is told, well done, my good and faithful servant. The words that we want to hear one day are well done, my good and faithful servant. The Corinthians weren't looking for faithfulness in Paul. They were looking for results. They were looking for something that he was not offering. And so they began to judge him. He says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He has heard their complaints. He has heard their murmuring. That he has not providing them with what they are looking for. We'll talk about what that is in here in a little bit. But he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. This is where it gets hard because we judge ourselves all the time. We do it with a certain set of lenses. There's people who judge themselves and they put on their lenses that everything looks like roses and sunshine. There's no problems when they look at themselves. There's nothing going wrong. Everything is the way that they think it should be. And if you bring a problem against them, they know that it's your fault. Then there's the other side of the coin when people judge themselves. The people that are way too hard on themselves. They read into everything. They overanalyze everything. They just sit and they sit and they sulk. And then their own worst enemy. Paul's saying neither of these or what matters when it comes to whether a servant or a steward is faithful. 
It is not up for the crowd to judge. It is not up for the court to judge. It is not even up for you to judge. It is the Lord who judges me. So he says in verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes. This is the heart of the issue that the Corinthian church has with Paul. They don't understand why he has all this hardship in his life. He doesn't understand why he doesn't bring a prosperity message with him. They want the riches and the comforts of life. And Paul is not demonstrating that. He's not showing it. and He's not preaching that. There are people that are saying he's not an apostle. In 2 Corinthians, we get a long treatment of what they view as wrong with Paul. Paul saying, don't judge me. Don't have an over-realized eschatology. There's better things coming, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is the reason why he doesn't want them to judge. He says, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You see, when we read that language, we're often tempted to go, oh, that means something bad. He's looking for something that's disclosed, something that's, that's in darkness. But the other way to look at that is it's what is not seen. You see, the thing with faithfulness is you can't always measure the results of faithfulness. It's not always out there and flashy. It's not always out there in bright neon lights saying, look at me. And what Paul is saying is, look, it is required of a servant to be faithful. And one day God is going to come and he is going to judge your work. And he ends this verse by saying, then each will receive his commendation from God. A commendation is a reward. God is going to come and reward the faithfulness of his servants. Faithfulness comes first, not flashy. I'm reminded of the story of the tortoise and the hare. And it's a children's tale that we've told to children for ages. Here's the thing about the tortoise and the hare. We all really want to be the hare, right? We want to run faster, jump higher, do things better. We want to be the one who has lavished praise upon them. And we think if we were the hare, we would just fix a couple of things. We would just not have as much vanity. We would just not take that nap. And we'd win the race and we'd have all the glory. When the moral of that story is that slow and steady wins the race. God has not called us to flashy. He has called us to faithfulness. We are called to build His kingdom, His way. I'm a big baseball fan. I have been a baseball fan my entire life. When I moved to Topeka, I thought I was alone as being a baseball fan. And then in the last couple of years, it seems that there's a lot of baseball fans here. (laughs) Which is great. We get to talk about baseball, but... The thing about baseball is that it's a numbers sport. It's marked by numbers. 56, 714, 762. Now my favorite number is 2,632. That's the number of consecutive games that my childhood hero, Cal Ripken, played. Now I'm not really that good at math, but if you divide 2,632 by 162 games in a season, you get a lot of consecutive seasons that he played. And his manager knew that every day he came to the ballpark, he could write Ripken in 
whether he was playing well or not, whether it was hot, cold, rainy, sunshiny, whether he felt good or didn't feel good, he could count on him. And that is why baseball history looks back so fondly on Cal Ripken. Not because he was the best player, not because he had the greatest stats, because he was faithful. I look back over my time here at Fellowship, and I've been here for almost nine years. And when you think about a a church growing, or you think about a church, you often think about names of pastors or leaders, and that's so and so's church, or so and so works there, and they tend to get they tend to get some of the praise. But when I think about my favorite stories about what have happened here in the last nine years, I think about people who have served with me in the mountain for six, seven, eight, and nine years. They have been faithful to their calling. No one knows their name. They don't have their picture up on the wall. The people who know their names are the children they serve and the families they minister to. I can guarantee you they don't do it for the pay. There is none. But they do it because they're a servant and a steward. God has showed them where they're going. He's given them a calling and a vision. And they say, I'm going to build your kingdom and I'm going to row my boat to where you have called me. The way we get around division in the church is we understand that faithfulness comes first. That we're not just drawn to the successful, we're not just drawn to the flashy, we're drawn to the faithful. We honor the faithful among us. The second thing that I believe that Paul has for us this morning is that we need to cast aside things that divide. We need to cast aside things that divide. So let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. He said, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. So it's everything that we've talked about in the first few verses, that I am a servant and a steward of the mysteries of God, that I don't judge myself, that you don't judge me, that I'm to be found faithful in the eyes of my Creator. I am applying these to Apollos and myself so that you can understand what it looks like. He says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. There's some debate over what that it is written means. Some people think that it's the first part of this book that we've been studying so far. Some people believe that it's other writings that Paul have done. Some people believe it's referring to the Old Testament. We don't have a footnote that tells us what it is. But evidently Paul believes that they have in writing teaching that should warn them against this behavior. He's saying, don't go beyond what is written. Because if you go beyond what is written, look what he says. None of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Knowledge puffs up. Things puff us up. We get arrogant and we get a big head. And we think that we have the answers and it's my way. And we define ourselves by what we do and what we think and what we have. And Paul is saying, you have to cast that aside. And he shows this by giving us three questions that he asks in verse 7. And they're easy questions. You don't have to think about the answer. By the way he asks it, you know the right answer. And the first one is this. Who sees anything different in you? Let me bring that up to speed for the 21st century. What is so special about you? You see, that is a terrible question to ask nowadays because everyone is special. Everyone is unique. Everyone should be left alone to do their own thing their own way because we all have the individuality to do whatever we want. And Paul's saying, no, 
What is different about you? You are a male and female created in the image of God to reflect him to a world that needs him. We are all made by him. We are called to the same things. That is who we are. But you say, but I have gifts and I have talents and I have things about me that make me unique. And he says this next question. What do you have that you did not receive? This is offensive to the idea of the American dream. We believe that we were born in nothing and we worked ourselves up and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and we worked harder than everyone else and we were given nothing and we took everything and we have earned it and earned it and earned it and what we have now we deserve. Paul very calmly asks, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, I have these gifts and these talents that have been given to you by God I have a work ethic that has been instilled in you by a creator and demonstrated to you by people who have come before you. Well, I have this, I have that. And Paul says, we have absolutely nothing that we did not receive. James says it this way, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, from the Father of lights. Every good gift that we have been given comes from God. There is nothing that we have to boast about. And so Paul asks his third question. He says, if then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul says, if you have to boast, if you can't help but let out what is so great about you, if you have to do that, this is what you get to boast in. You get to boast that you know Christ and him crucified. And so as you look and there's camps and I'm with Apollos and I'm with Peter and I'm with Paul, he's saying, no, we are all at the same level. You need to get rid of these things that divide you and we have done a terrible job historically as a church. You can go back to the Protestant Reformation and there was a great debate happening over the issue of communion. Was it the actual body and blood of Christ or was it bread and was it wine? And believe it or not, they would kill each other over this difference. Because they were divided. You say, well, that was hundreds of years ago, and they were barbaric back then, and now we're civilized, and things are much better. And I could tell you a story about a church in Texas that has split twice in 50 years over the issue of communion. They split over whether it was wine and grape juice and wine one. And ten years later, they had another conflict on wine and grape juice and grape juice one. We divide ourselves. We're building our own kingdoms with our own ways and our own methods. When I was in high school, I was a part of a church business meeting where the issue at hand was the number of people in a choir. And the church came to a halt, arguing over the amount of people in a choir When I was in seminary, I was a part of a church that had just split. A senior pastor had retired and two leaders had emerged and one group wanted one and one wanted the other. And when one was chosen, the other left and started a new church. This is real. We divide ourselves when we don't understand that we are grounded together. You see, we chose the title for this sermon series, Grounded, very intentionally. 
And in week one, Joe showed some pictures of the building that's going on. And he showed you a cement load-bearing wall, or whatever the correct term is, I don't know. But it has been there to reinforce everything that's going on. And there's going to be steel beams that go down into the ground and that are 100 feet in length to make sure that this place will be grounded so that it will not move, it will not shake. And you have been grounded in your faith. And that grounding is in Jesus Christ. The mystery of God is that Christ is in us. His life, his death, his resurrection. That he is going to come again and bring a kingdom with him. Ephesians says it this way, that you have been built into a foundation and upon that he is building the Jews and the Gentiles into one new man, one building. Because we are one people of God, we are one kingdom that we are building. And we forget that we are grounded together. Now, I'm not saying that there are not issues to divide over. But the way we say it is there are shouts of Scripture and whispers of Scripture. There are things to keep with a closed fist and things to hold with an open hand. And there are things that we will not throw away. The inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures, the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Christ Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, the depravity of man, Christ's bodily return, and that he is building a place for us to go and live with him for all time. There are issues that we will never release and relinquish. But there are other issues that we're not going to see eye to eye on. With a room this size, I could ask one or two questions and we'd get a hundred different answers And it's not that everyone is right, it's that we don't have to divide. That we have to understand whose kingdom that we're building. We're not building the kingdom of Apollos and the kingdom of Paul and the kingdom of Peter. We're building the kingdom of the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. And to do that, to be the rowers and the stewards of our mission. We have to cast aside things that divide. Our last thing that Paul has for us this morning is that greater things are yet to come. Greater things are yet to come. Uh, Now, I was taught by my parents growing up that sarcasm was not a good thing. And so it's a little fun to read verse 8 and to see Paul being a little bit sarcastic. He says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And they have it. They're not kings and they're not rich. Even amongst the time. But they kind of feel like they are. They feel like they have been given all of these things by God. And they're living their best life now. And they're upset with Paul. And they're judging Paul. Because Paul says that's not the way of faith. Greater things are coming later. He says it this way. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He says that because his life is hard. He tells us in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. You see, if you were living in this time and you heard men sentenced to death and you heard making a spectacle, you'd probably get a picture of a Roman army. And a Roman army would go in and they would conquer and they would take captives and they would parade the captives back through the town. 
They would make a spectacle of them. And they would throw them into the Colosseum where they would do battle with warriors and beasts to the death. Paul's saying, my mission as a servant and as a steward is that I am a man being led to death that I've been made a spectacle. It's an opposition to what they're seeing. He continues in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And he shifts into verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecute, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. See, Paul's not in any hurry to change this about himself. Because he understands that there is a greater day coming. That the temporary earthly pleasures of this world hold no comparison to the day when Christ comes back. When Christ comes back, he's going to take us with him. And he will be our God and we will be his people. He is going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more suffering or sickness or pain or death. All the old things will pass away and the new will come. Paul is saying, that is what I want. That is the reward. That is the day that I am looking for. And I am not willing to trade my call or my role as a servant or a steward for the temporary fleeting pleasures of this world. Greater things are yet to come. Every year Christmas comes around and my family uh, does this thing where they put out lists. You guys probably do that too and I'm the worst one in my family. I, I never have a list. And I'm not saying that I don't want things. I'm just saying I never can think of anything to put down on a piece of paper. And so the best thing that my family can get for me is cash. Because when you give you cash, you just, you can buy what you want when you, when you want it, when you find it. And that's great. But the worst thing that you can give my children is cash. I can, I, I, I can hear it. Brian, you need to teach them. You need to have the jars. You have the third spend, the third save, the third give. And I, we've tried that. And they're two and four and seven. And sometimes that just goes right over their head. And when that spending jar gets a little too, too full, they're like, oh man, we got to go to Target. We got to go to Target. And eventually we break down and we go to Target. And you walk in the doors and you grab your cart. And if you're like us, you use the hand sanitizer. And then they have that little L right on the side where everything's a dollar. And it's like they found the world's greatest treasure and they want everything. And like, no, you don't need this. It's all junk. And let's, let's actually move back. Let's go to the books. Let's go to the toys. We try to get there. And then they find the thing that they've wanted for their entire lives. Even though it's only been out a month. And they want it so badly and so badly and I try so hard to talk them out of it. Because I know the truth. Tomorrow it's going to be broken. In a week it will no longer be played with. And it will go to the eternal pile of junk that we have in our house. But you can't convince them. Because it is the greatest thing in their life at the moment. 
and they're willing to trade future benefit, if they were to save their money, if they were to wait for something that could truly be something that they wanted, they're willing to trade that for a temporary moment of purchasing. I'm afraid that we so often do that in this life. That we look at the calling of God in our life. We look at all the things that we could be doing with our time and say, you know what, it's not worth it because this thing right now is bright and shiny. And it divides us because we don't want people messing with our stuff. We don't want people messing with who we are. And so we hold off in communities that allow us to insulate and live our own lives. Paul is saying, greater things are yet to come. Don't trade what is eternal of value for something that is temporary. Paul's message for us is that we are building God's kingdom. That we are called to be stewards and servants of the mysteries of God. That we are called to lead the way in proclaiming the gospel and building his kingdom in this world as long as we're here. That we're not to divide ourselves off. The way we do that is by being faithful to what we've been called to do. With what we have, with who we are, with where we're at. Being faithful to the call of God in our lives. To do that, we have to cast aside the things that divide. We have to get rid of anything that would cause us to get away from our mission. From attacking this world and being the church. God, Jesus told Peter, upon you I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not resist it. But we can't do that if we're divided. And lastly, church, greater things are yet to come. There is a greater day coming than anything we could have here. And it's not worth it to build our own kingdom in light of what we could be doing for his. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness to the mission that you called him to. Thankful that you used him to write scripture to us, Father, and I pray that you would take this scripture and that you would burden it on our hearts. Father, that we would understand that there is nothing that we possess that we did not receive and that the only thing that we can boast about is that we know you. Father, I pray that you would be our greatest shout. I pray that you'd be our greatest boast. And I pray that we would be on mission for you before we're on mission for ourselves. Father, impress in our heart that greater things are yet to come. And may we spend our lives building your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.